0: Hello and welcome to Footnotes the Cicerone Podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah and I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hello and welcome to Cicerone Live. Tonight we're talking to Joe Williams, Publishing Director at Cicerone Press. He's just got back from Peru and he has been talking the hind legs off anybody in the office about how wonderful it was. So he wants to share with you guys Everything about Peru. He did the Waiwash trek, but I will let him explain because obviously he knows far more about it than I do. Hello, Joe.
2: Hey, Anna, how are you doing?
1: Oh, I am good. I've not seen you for about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, yeah, we're talking tonight about Peru. And you've just got back from Peru and it's a trip that you've wanted to do for ages. Can you just explain where it was and how the the Cicerone guidebook to Peru differs from the trip that you did?
2: Yeah, sure. So we went to the Cordillera Waiwash, which is... A really small, compact but spectacular mountain range, pretty much in the centre of Peru. It's just to the south of an area called the Cordillera Blanca, which is where, the, is where the highest peaks in Peru are. The Cicerone book is for the Inca trails, so that covers hiking and biking in that area, which is a bit further to the south. I mean, we wanted to do a, a kind of like a high alpine trek with like really sort of really dramatic scenery and lots of up huge amounts of ups and downs. Whereas you'd probably choose to do the inca trails if you were interested in more of the i don't know a bit more of a cultural aspect and the historical side of things with the the inca history and while the mountains are still very steep and there's still lots of ups and downs it's not as quite at such high altitude so it's probably a bit better for people that don't want to go up to five thousand meters which is not not everybody really
1: yeah that is pretty high that's not going (laughs) to suit everyone i'm not sure what biking at that altitude would be like either
2: God, I can't imagine. Well,
1: I, I guess what you're going to do is do a presentation and we're going to get to see some lovely photos and at least one picture that is not that lovely of you looking really fed up and grumpy. But I'm sure you'll explain why. So I'll I'll leave you to it. And yeah. Yeah,
2: thanks for that. Thanks a lot, Hannah. Great, so it is a really nice opportunity to be able to talk about my holiday. I guess I get to I get to see some amazing book proposals from authors for amazing places around the world, and the you know many of these things we then get to turn into books. But the Ywash circuit is not something that we've got a book to. Well, not not yet at least. Right, so so what is it? Well, it's a trek in the middle of Peru. The area is particularly, or most known and most famous for being the setting for where Touching the Void happened. You know, you may know this story. It's the Joe Simpson book where he and his climbing partner Simon Yates climbing up a big mountain. There was an accident. There was a rope cutting incident, and then a dramatic crawl down the glacier and, and sort of a, uh, a bit of a self rescue. So it's this this kind of famous area on the mountain of Ciudad Grande in this mountain range. The Why Circuit. Well, there's various ways that you. Can can do it but it's commonly about 100 120 kilometers something like that with poor, oh, i think it's something to somewhere between 8 and 10000 meters of ascent it's probably more closer to eight, actually. It's usually done in, I guess, somewhere between sort of ten to thirteen days. That's kind of the right, the, the normal kind of spread for for people. We we did it a bit quicker. We did it in five days, but I'll go on to talk about that a little bit more a bit later. Essentially, we wanted a slightly different experience, more on the challenge front, while still getting to enjoy this amazing area. So. As I mentioned, there's, it's a bit of a difference to the Inca Trails. It's for people that like high altitude. It's for people that want to go somewhere where there aren't any huts. It's not crazy remote, but it is, it is pretty remote. There are some long climbs. Some of them are actually pretty long in terms of the amount of ascent, but many of them are just long in that they take a long time because it's at high altitude and because you're going slowly. It's for people that really like spe- spectacular alpine scenery. And the other thing, I suppose, is if you're looking for somewhere where you might be able to get away with still speaking a bit of English. It's not the right place to go. Everyone speaks Spanish and it's only Spanish. So where where are we? Probably a bit hard to see in, on some people's screens here, but we can have we can see Lima down here on the coast of the capital of Peru. Then the city of Huara's to the north of it, and then just to the south of Juarez, that's where the whitewash. Cusco, for reference, is down here. That's where the Inca trails stuff happens. I guess where is where is Peru? Well, we can see the very top part of Peru here. The equator runs actually about three kilometres to the north of the furthest tip north of Peru. It's a bit of a, a closer view of, of the circuit. So it's kind of like a, well, the route that we did is a lollipop, I suppose. We're starting in that in that point far here in the northwest. We're coming east, and then we're going around in a clockwise direction. It's quite common for people to start up here, do the loop, and then finish in the town of Yamak, yeah, we. I guess we wanted to complete a circuit, uh, so that's why we sort of made this little little tweak. So, what's great about the trek? Well, the mountains—they're spectacular, scary-looking, intimidating. Uh, as a climber, I'm both drawn to them and almost like repelled by them. They don't look like there's easy ways up many of these these peaks, and certainly not easy ways down them. Anyone that's climbing these peaks is really, yeah, at the top of their the top of their game. The views, valleys, coals, the route passes over, always over a high point each day and then down into another valley. So you're always guaranteed changing scenery every day and diverse scenery as well. This was just a photo taken sort of later on that day down a much greener looking valley. The people. No, no shots of people in this, in this particular photo, but uh, we can see these huts where shepherds, I don't know if they're based based there permanently or if it's more of a seasonal thing, but, but yeah, there's plenty of people that live up in these high valleys. I mean, this photo here is taken at 4,000 meters. And that big peak that we can see in the back there, that's Yerupaja, which is 6,600 meters high. Absolutely enormous. But, you know, there's plenty of people that live up in these valleys and they're really nice and friendly and great to try to get your Spanish to the level where you can actually have a bit of a conversation. I guess the other nice thing about it is it's, it can be your trek, your way. I mean, there aren't any huts there. So people that are, that are keen on having a natural bed for the night are going to be disappointed. But there's lots of ways you can approach this route either by making changes to the route as we did making it a bit longer there's plenty of variants you can do things like a they call it a a mini whywash maybe sort of three or four days loop but to get around the whole of the the main mountain chain is going to take most people yeah i mean five days in our case but it's quite common for it to be be 10 days Right. So I guess I'll just tell you the story of our trek now. So before we came to Peru, we'd actually spent 10 days in Bolivia. I mean, I just couldn't possibly recommend Bolivia and Peru more to anyone that likes the mountains and, and likes traveling. They're just incredible places. So we got to see some wonderful things from, from that amazing scenery just outside of La Paz in the previous photo to flamingos in lagoons at four and a half thousand meters with volcanoes dotted around through to enjoying a, a glass of red wine and some snacks on the Bolivian salt flats in the Salar de uni, which is' it's, again that 's got to be on everybody 's to do list to actually go and visit visit those places and then additionally, we did quite a bit of high altitude walking and a bit of mountaineer as well. This is a popular six thousand meter peak in the back right there called Huayna potosi it 's quite 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 an easy one, but yeah one wonderful place to for us to acclimatize and then get ready for heading off. to to Peru. So how to get to the whitewash? I'm going to go into much more detail a bit later on like the logistics and the practicalities of everything. But I'll tell you what we did. We flew to Lima. We had a couple of connections in order to get there. But for most people visiting from Europe or from the US, flights typically leave in the morning between nine and midday. And various connections typically end up depositing you in Lima in the evening of that same day. So you you might well have the option of being able to get on a bus to the city of Juarez straight away. What we did is we were coming from La Paz we got an early morning flight and then we got a day bus to Juarez for anyone that's not traveled in South America and this was my first experience of South American travel the common way to get around is by I guess you'd call it by a coach but a pretty comfortable long distance coach that you know reclines you a long way you know the very long journeys the bus from Lima to Juarez was I think it was about nine hours and it stopped for about 40 minutes or so for for a nice lunch break so it's not it's not it's not much of a trial at all particularly we got to Juarez that night we stayed the night in a hostel and then the next next morning we had already organized a a jeep a guy called freddie to uh, pick us up from our hostel and drive us the three hours to yamak so then that's where the trek begins there's not really much to Yamak. It's pretty low down for the Cordillera Waiwash, only a bit over 3,000 metres, but it provides the starting point for the Waiwash circuit. It's pretty hot in comparison to the rest of the trail. We didn't really get much much skin exposed when we were higher up in the mountains, but certainly well over 20 degrees in Yamak. I mean, after fe- cross- cresting the first col, we got our first view of the main Cordillera Waiwash range. And yeah, just, uh, just an amazing, amazing sight to see. We'd seen it from further off as we were driving, both on the bus and on the Jeep, the Jeep ride. But, you know, it's always so exciting, isn't it? When you're, when you're approaching the mountain and getting closer and closer and then finally you're, you're in them. Our first day was, uh, it, was a bit of a, it was a half day really only about six or seven hours. This was a half day in in our schedule anyway. I thought I'd been pretty well I should be pretty well acclimatized by th- this point but actually I ended up having a pretty bad headache at the camp that that night. Also that night we met the only other independent trekkers there. There were plenty of people walking the route. It never feels busy at all, and we did have at least one one camp where we didn't didn't see any other tents in that area that night. So yeah, definitely a good one for independent trekkers, but not many people there. We had a nice uh, cute visitor that night. This is uh, Barry, as we named him. As soon as we got into this first night's camp, Barry, who presumably lives in the area of the camp came and uh, guarded caroline and i all night whenever anybody any other trekkers walked past to go to the the latrines barry gave them a good solid barking at he was curled up loyally outside of our tent all night and uh, and also tried to get into the tent all the time which was a bit a bit, bit awkward but what a place to uh, to spend the night. Most of the sunsets we had were absolutely spectacular. It's worth taking a tripod, I'd say, and definitely worth taking a decent camera. In mountains like this, you're going to get a really good result from bringing a I guess a better camera than than what's on your phone, and you can you can start to tell the difference when you're getting really good lenses and uh, really good processors in there too. Day two Dawn pretty cold, and this was actually a, a common theme for most of the tracks. Each morning, it being we'd be wearing all of our layers, and we didn't really we didn't bring that many layers. But talking about long sleeve base layer, insulated, windproof, and then a a full on synthetic over jacket at the top, hat, gloves, winter weight leggings. Yeah, we were wearing everything in the mornings. And by the time we got to the top of the first call, we sort of had this realization of about what we got ourselves in for. Um, it had taken us about the same amount of time as the guidebook says it should take us. Now, that might not be that weird a thing to say, but we're we're commonly used to exceeding guidebook times. I think what we were discovering was that the weight of our bags, which admittedly are not that large there for a five-day trek, but but a a decent weight nonetheless, meant that we were traveling slower than we might have hoped for, which basically made us realize, okay, we're going to have some pretty long days here. Caroline's still quite happy at this point, and, and it mostly remained that way as we went on. But yeah, the scenery is changing all the time. It's absolutely, I mean, literally, this is just a couple of hours after that that previous photo and the dramatic icy mountains before it. We occasionally see these mining roads. They're not a particularly big issue from a trekker's perspective, but they do, I guess they do show you that it's not it's not wilderness. It's remote, but it's not wilderness. At this point, we this is on our day two, but we had walked two of the guidebook days, and we still had another guidebook day to go. And this was at about about three thirty in the afternoon. The big peak we can see to the back here is uh, Shankar, which is uh, yeah quite quite a famous mountain and spectacularly difficult. There have been some quite hard British ascent new route on Jirishanka as well. It was it was a pretty long day this this day too. At this point we're we're kind of racing the darkness, running down to the last camp as the, the mountains of Sierra Grande and Yarupaha gather their clouds for the evening. But that next day it was a bit regrettable, really. It, it dawned a bit cloudy. I mean, definitely, this is a, it's still a spectacular view, but it was a bit a bit of a shame that we didn't have it perfectly clear. And it didn't really shift all morning. It was amazing walking past the uh, the Triple Lakes uh, underneath the, these great peaks as we headed up to Paso siula which is shade under five thousand meters. Cresting five thousand meters for the first time on day three of our trek. This was where we took one of the variant route. I guess I think people sometimes call it the the Alpine variant. So this took us over a five thousand meter pass rather than a what does my map say four thousand nine hundred meter pass. But it did save us a little bit of distance, and we got to see some some incredible views. At this day, you get really really close to these these huge mountains over the top of that that first pass. Uh, sorry that that 5000 meter pass caroline had a bit of a bit of a tough time my tough time was to come the next day but uh, as soon as we got over that pass we were greeted this uh, with this incredible view that just blew us away it was absolutely stunning the thing we did miss by adapting this day was the hot springs which we were really quite quite gutted about but it would have meant a, a spectacularly long day with many hours of walking in the dark and we just weren't really that excited about it so we missed the hot springs but i guess we'll have to go back and and do that variant another year. It was a shorter day than some of the days that we'd had. We got into camp before it got dark, which was a bit of a bit of a novelty. But that night for me a headache started coming on again. I'd been having headaches on and off from the altitude. But yeah, I didn't really I went to sleep with it. I felt it through the night. And then as often happens at higher altitudes, because you're at rest and there's therefore your your respiration rate slows down, where you're getting in. Basically, less oxygen than you might want. So it's quite common to actually wake up with a headache as well. So that is that is what happened for me. And I felt pretty rough that next morning. But uh, we knew that the view was going to be incredible over the the high pass We could have taken a a variant option down the valley. And in fact, we probably should have done. I think it was in hindsight, actually not even in hindsight, it felt this way at the time. It would have been a better move to have taken it a bit easy and walked down the valley instead of going over another 5,000 meter pass that next morning. So... We did go up that that pass that next day, and we did see this mental view of the west face of Sioux La which which is where the uh, touching the void incidents uh, all happen. And yeah, it was uh, it was wonderful to see, but my head was absolutely pounding at the pass. I was actually getting quite quite concerned. I so I did. We had a quick conversation Caroline and night, and we agreed that I was going to basically run down and try to descend as much as possible, to, so I could start feeling a little bit better. And actually, that that helped that helped massively by descending. quite Quickly, stopping briefly to catch a quick snap of Sierra grand. But again, that ascent to that to that pass Paso Yurao was was extremely cold. But again, it was a, it was another long day. This day was uh, it was about a twenty mile walking day, so over thirty kilometers. We'd walked down a very long valley and then began another very long ascent. So by this point, we were on the last ascent of the day, which was actually a fourteen hundred meter long climb. And at this point, we're seven hundred meters up that climb. And we'd just been overtaken by i guess by a young a young family father, mother, and a daughter with their dog and their mule and they'd they'd come up i think they'd come up with the daughter who was probably about six or seven years old after school. I think she'd been down in the village uh, in the valley below, been to school all day. they'd all walk back up seven hundred meters and this was appeared to be where they lived obviously they they stormed past us without any little effort at all, but it was great to see them living up here it was a really long climb this uh, this one on day 4 and uh, especially with my head suffering from earlier in the day this was my big struggle day we can see over here some some tents so this is be one of the uh, the organized commercial expeditions that we walked straight past them and kept on going up that mountain and uh, and over to the other side so 12 hours into the day and yeah, it's starting to get dark and the the legs are hurting a little bit. The headache is starting to come back. We're getting close to 5,000 meters again. I find this a really lovely moment. Many people, I guess may people may not be able to relate to this, but it's, it's when you're out in the mountains at the end of the day and you've got it, you know, you've still actually got quite a long way till you get to camp. You know that it's going to get dark on you before you get to a camp. So at that point, why rush? You can sort of, it sort of becomes a little bit more peaceful. But then 13 hours into the day, it really did get dark. And by that point, it then still, we then still had another half hours of walking in the darkness to get to that final night's camp. But, but, you know, that didn't stop the beauty of it being appreciated at all. Day five, this was our, our last day on the trail. We took a little bit of a, a split, Caroline taking a higher ridge to get some some additional photos and me dropping down. We had a walk along a long levada that carries water to the village of Yamak below. And again, as we descended, it got hotter and hotter. And then eventually we popped out in, in Yamak, that small little village where we'd been dropped off five days beforehand. And thankfully, Freddie, our driver, was right there. And when I asked him if he knew where I could buy a coke, all of a sudden he he sort of nipped round the corner in this sort of really quiet little village. I ended up chatting to a woman who then uh opened a random closed door on the street. And all of a sudden this was her shop So it was great that we got to we got to get buy some, buy some coke and make a small cont- contribution to the the local economy and three hours drive later on the on the jeep in the Jeep with Freddie and we were back in Juarez uh, that's that night for a celebratory Italian Peruvian fusion meal Juarez is a really cool place it's a bit like I don't know, it's like the Chamonix of South America and very keen to go back so yeah that was the that was really the story of our our circuit.
1: What on earth did you eat at an Italian Peruvian restaurant? Oh yeah, good
2: question. We, it's not really, it's probably a bit, they call it Italian Peruvian fusion, but actually they do, they, the plates typically look like a pasta dish and then some Peruvian, a Peruvian dish. It just happens to be on the same plate, but you know, not not unpleasant, not unpleasant. I
1: also have a question from a very well-known little <laughs> Peruvian bear.
2: That Did looks like Paddington.
1: See... <laughs> Did you see any bears when you were on your trip?
2: I'm afraid Paddington that we uh, we didn't. There are bears around. I think they're more particularly in the in the jungle in Peru and they're the the spectacle bear. So we didn't see any bears. Actually in the ayahuasca we saw well, we saw a lot of cows. You know, I think this kind of, it's, it's worked land, even though it's so, so high. There's, yeah, there's people that, people that work up there and, and maintain their livestock. But cows that were pretty cool, like they were able to walk up a and run down a scree slope, a 45 degree scree slope at 4,800 metres. I thought that was a pretty cool cow.
1: Yeah, Paddington can do that and not lose his hat. He's not, he's not impressed.
2: But Impressive.
1: He, I mean, he always wants to contribute to these live events and I always say no, but today I just couldn't ignore him because it is his homeland. It's
2: so, good to have him on.
1: Yeah, sorry for that interruption. So here, it looks like you're quite low down, but how high are you at, at this village?
2: Well, this, the, the Flat Valley Fort that we see below right here is, is 4,050 metres, and it's really hard to make out, but there is a there is a camp just on just beside that lake. The peaks behind, right in slap bang in the centre of the picture, that's Cerišanka. I'll just check the map. Six thousand and ninety four meters high, and Yerupaha up here, six thousand six hundred meters high. But yeah, just even the valley the valley floors are at four thousand meters most of the time in the Waiwash circuit you're doing passes that are between 4,700 and 5,000 meters high. And you're camping at any altitude between 4,000 meters and 4,500 meters.
1: Yeah, amazing. And just just quickly, one more thing. What guidebook did you use? Because we've already mentioned that we don't have a Cicerone guidebook yet. So what did you use?
2: Yeah, good. Good question. We we use this one actually. It's from Trailblazer. It's a really nice, really nice book. Even though we really struggled to to better the guidebook times, I think that I mean I, I do think we can generally do quite a good, quite a good pace. Caroline and I, but I think Neil and Harriet are beasts. Yeah, but no, it was a, it was a good book actually. What we did is the the old classic thing. We we ripped out some pages. I know some people think that this is a blasphemous thing to do, but you know this weighed pretty much nothing, and we could have it in the pocket all the time yeah nice book
1: yeah cool I don't know whether you, you're going to come on to talk about that but I just thought we'd, we we may as well plug a book even if it's not our own book yeah definitely. Um, <laughs> so right I'll, I'll let you get back to it Joe's just going to talk for a few more minutes about practicalities and and stuff like that but yeah get the questions sent in and we'll we'll ask we'll ask him them at the end
2: yes do fire away with the questions I'll, I'll try and cover what I what I can here so planning and logistics for doing something like this. I guess, you know, I'm I'm not like the guidebook author. I'm just some guy that went on holiday. So I only know from the research that I did, um, uh, the people that I've spoken to and, and other approaches that I've seen. But the way we did things is we were completely independent, I would say. The thing that we did want some help with was just the transport from the city of Huaraz to, to Yamak, which is the village where the trail starts. So it's a three-hour drive. It cost us eight, eight hundred Peruvian soles, which is about 170 pounds, something like for for both ways. So round trip, quite expensive, I suppose, for for two three-hour three-hour taxi rides. But uh, it meant that we could get dropped off and picked up exactly where we wanted. Other than that, we were we were self-sufficient. So we had bought um, bought food in Lima before we then ended up going on to what uh, was before the trip. Food. Well, this is me eating lunch, which consisted grandly of two dry tortillas. Not not great, really, but when you're moving long distances and, and quickly, we know that compromises sometimes need to be made. But, you know, It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. We, I did actually find that we had some protein bars with us, and I found my stomach wasn't able to cope with it. I think it's the e- combination of exercise and, and altitude. And it just gave me a stomachache, so I couldn't even eat some of the food that we brought with us as well but basically we i mean i'll just talk about our day food in the morning we had a mug full of porridge that was just from like little sachets that you just you know pour boiling water in during the day we had snacks like tortillas and some bars and nuts and a trail mix and you know this this kind of thing some chocolate and then as soon as we got to camp We would we made quite a nice discovery of having hot juice on arrival at camp. So we made quite a lot of it, and we were able to drink it quite quickly. But it also warmed us up, which was really nice. But because we were often getting into camp when it was getting dark or when it had already been dark, we needed to have like a really quick quick routine. So I would brew up the juice. And, and boil water for our dehydrated meals while Caroline made the and then by the time the meals had rehydrated, the tent would have been put up. We jumped straight into the tent into our sleeping bags and ate, and then fell asleep. It all happened really rather quickly and we really needed the rest it was uh, it was really tough. So this is our kit packing in in Juarez before we got on our jeep. And we did pack pretty light. If anyone's really curious about this, I, I am. I'm definitely a big gear nerd myself. So if anyone wants, I don't know, to wants our packing list, I'd be very happy to provide the the Excel spreadsheet with all of its weights and and tick list and all that sort of thing. But yeah, any other questions that come in right now, then just yeah, please f- fire away. Our packs weighed, including food and water i think 10 11 kilos or something like that the one of the issues was that we uh did have to take quite big sleeping bags The temperature at night gets, well, it's freezing most nights, Quite and it can be minus 5, minus 10 at night. And then it's getting up to sort of low teens in the daytime. So we did have to carry really big sleeping bags. And you can see here that I'm getting a dual use out of it and wearing it at camp. Now, yeah, you can see on the right there are kind of our standard attire, which would have been long sleeve base layer, a buff and a hat. And the're probably the most underrated and most versatile jacket that I've ever come across, which is the Marmot dry climb wind shirt, which is like a windproof outer layer and a super super thin micro fleece on the inside it's really breathable, keeps you warm, and it's windproof um so, I guess it's a good point to like touch about on our, our fast packing slash ultralight backpacking kind of experience versus the other way of doing things, which would be a bit more comfortable. And maybe carrying a 70 litre rucksack and taking 10 days or 12 days over the route, or maybe even going with a commercial organization to and for mules to carry all of your kit. I mean, we had yeah a pretty small tent. We couldn't sit up. One, well, as you know, to be fair, one person could sit up at a time, but not both of us. You know, it's a, it was a pretty small, small tent that weighed, uh, weighed one kilo. But again, the problem with that is our sleeping bags were so big and more like winter weight sleeping bags that they pressed against the outside, against the inner lining of the tent. And because it's a lightweight and not winter worthy tent, the outer and the inner tent would often touch. So our sleeping bags also got wetter and wetter as the, as the five days went on. Actually to the point where on day four, we just got the sleeping bags out of our rucksacks and we had sort of had them on like cape over the top of our rucksack in order to dry them out as we were walking for a couple of hours. It worked pretty well. Normally you know, you'd know, you be able to get to camp you know, early afternoon and then get your sleeping bag airing out maybe on top of the tent and take in the views and sort of just chill out a little bit. But yeah we didn't have time for that. We had to do things while while walking. So there's a couple of ways of I guess adapting the Y-wash circuit. I'm just going to talk about how one might might make it even cheaper than we did it, and how somebody might make it a bit more expensive. I guess the the thing to say is that it's uh, there's not that much variability in the 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 flight costs, regardless of really where you where you're coming from to get to Lima. You know, it's it's relatively expensive, but you know it's a, it's a pretty, generally pretty cheap country when you're when you're there. So how could we have made it cheaper? We could have avoided getting the private jeep, yeah. Which for us, one hundred and seventy pounds, it, you could have got a bus. Uh, actually, I think you've got, you need to get a couple of buses slash uh, collectivos. It certainly would be doable, but our Spanish would no way it was going to be uh, up, up to that. Could have got a cheaper hostel in Lima uh, or Juarez. We could have avoided buying dehydrated meals. We could have either made our own or just bought some cheap noodles from from a supermarket. I can't think of that many other ways to make it that much cheaper. But to make it a little bit more luxurious, the option would be to go with an agency. I think about a thousand pounds gets you a a spot on a fully organized and guided trip with a local operator. To go with one of the more well-known international and English-speaking operators I think it's more like three thousand pounds. You could go, you know, even further and and have it like a, a fully private trek organized. It's got to be said; it would be a really nice way to do to do this trek, to do it, to take a little bit more time to have have time in camp to relax at the end of each day, to carry small rucksacks, to enjoy the pleasures of the the, the mess tent in the evening, to enjoy a chair. I mean, a chair like. Yeah, the, we were nowhere near being able to have a chair with the size of our packs and our, our weight allowance. Have somebody cook your meals for you. I mean, that sounds all quite quite nice. And that would probably be a good way to do the trek again in the future one day. But for us, that challenge of fast packing and trying to run little bits where we could, not much to be fair, but uh, but running a little bit and, uh, and that sort of continuous movement. And, and then I guess the satisfaction of having done it all yourself and being and looking after yourselves in the in those high mountains for for 5 days and doing those kind of distances like it's a different experience and I don't really find one to be better than the other it just depends what what you're after so that was that was our yiwash experience
1: oops i was muted sorry yeah that was really funny that that comment about the chair I remember when I went trekking and and getting back to somewhere where I could sit on a proper chair and just being like, I'd already had a hot shower, so it was already like the best day of my life. But then sitting on an actual chair, it's funny how you just, yeah, the simple things just feel amazing after a a little time without them. We have a a question from Sandy. Yeah, you didn't share any pictures of local residents, but what was their clothing like? Was it was it different to the sort of typical clothing of North America or Europe?
2: Yeah, apologies for not including any photos there. I'm I'm a really I'm a, a terrible like portrait photographer, and and probably not brave enough to try and practice my shocking Spanish to ask somebody <laughs> if I can take their photo. But I guess the answer is it was relatively unique clothing the people up there for the most part. I guess there's two kinds of kind of groups that I would sort of categorize firstly the uh, some of the ladies in the area they've got some they've always got a nice a nice a characteristic hat a, a colorful bit of i I do apologize for not knowing the words for any of these things but like a big bit of cloth that's kind of like a like a shawl but actually you can carry stuff in it and they do carry stuff in it and then thinking about the the guys on horseback so there's like literally real peruvian cowboys you know with like cowboy boots and like and a hat and and then a poncho you know on top as well yeah those guys were very cool
1: yeah that sounds really cool daniel's got a question saying if you wanted to avoid a severe headache which sounds very sensible daniel what what sort of time would you suggest to take over this trip that's
2: a really good question daniel well <laughs> Obviously, is the annoying answer of it. It depends because altitudes are relatively individual kind of thing. But I would, I wouldn't suggest anybody goes from sea level or more, more or less sea level, flies to Lima. Get a bus to Warehouse, go straight to the to Yamak and come straight onto the YWAS circuit. I think uh, do that I think that's a recipe, even if you go really slow, probably for landing yourself in trouble. I would recommend and certainly the authors of the Trailblazer book do this too. I recommend staying in waras which is at three thousand meters. Stay there for a few days. There's loads of cool things to see around the town, and acclimatization hikes to go higher and higher. A nice place to stay to gradually acclimatize over. And then I think probably like four, three, three or four days would be a really, really good base for you to then get straight over to the Waiwash and and go around the circuit. Yeah, I think that's probably the right way of doing it.
1: At what point would you have decided that that was enough was enough? You needed to you needed to stop, or you needed to
2: go down a lot lower. Yeah, it's it's a great question. The, the One of the luxury items, if you can call it this, or maybe it was an essential item that we took with us, was another one of the books behind us, actually. It was the the Cicerone Pocket Wilderness and First Aid book. And we used this as a reference like a lo- bunch of times just for kind of checking in on what our what our symptoms were and whether it was anything to be concerned about, and there's various kind of checklists in the book, and a thing called the Lake Louise score, where you can sort of assess yourself and say, okay, I'm probably okay. I've got i got this and this, but I don't have these five other things, or it's not so. I've got a bad headache, but I don't you know don't have these other symptoms. So that was actually really useful, being able to sort of refer to that and check in in, in on that. I mean, for myself, I just had just an, an enormous headache over Paso Euro, but you know, there wasn't anything more than that. Heart was sort of kind of about under control. My respiration rate was uh, was okay. In the the main concern, considering that headache symptom, would be cerebral edema, and uh, my coordination was spot on. I was fully conscious. My Cognitive capabilities were, were fine. But you know, the, it's really, I do think it is really important whether you are independent or on an organized trip to be really clued into what the symptoms of more severe altitude illness are. So that of a cerebral or a pul- pulmonary edema and then to. You know be you've got to be like totally open with yourself and with others about what's going on because you know there's many places here where it would take a really long time to get to but sometimes sort of just even to get get lower altitude, let alone get to I don't know a hospital. So yeah, it's worth being careful.
1: Yeah, Jaquetta's got a further point, actually, about this. How were you so sure that your headache was from altitude and not altitude-induced dehydration? And how, how much water did you carry and how much did you drink per day?
2: Right. So firstly, and I hope this isn't too controversial, my understanding of dehydration and headaches as a, as a symptom are that the two are not related. And that's been quite well proven in the literature now. But we can save that to possible Debate for another time but we were we were you know we were certainly trying to drink uh, quite a lot we drank we filtered all of our water i guess we should say we both carried two 500 liter, 500 milliliter soft flasks and we had filter caps on top of them so that's that's what we used all the time or we boiled our water so when we got into camp at night we didn't filter it we just did a rolling boil as the the first wilderness and medicine and first aid book suggested we did a rolling boil for can't remember if it was a minute or two minutes and and then use that for drinking and for our meals. But how much were we drinking? Probably about five litres a day, four or five litres a day, something like that. We had been taking Diamot as well, which is a a drug to assist in acclimatization. And it does have a diuretic effect as well. So you do need to yeah additionally keep on top of that that fluid intake if you're taking that.
1: And don't drink yellow snow.
2: No, don't do that. <laughs>
1: finally another top tip from me Uh, (laughs) I never have that much to contribute in these sessions Uh, Um, (laughs) Bridget's got a question about the time of year so you've only just got back so you were there for most of june but what sort of weather window is there for doing the Y rush
2: yeah another really good question so we went in the peruvian winter which basically means yeah it's a bit colder but what it does do is it almost guarantees that it's not going to rain and the maybe not guarantees but i think they, they don't have very many rainy or cloudy days through the winter june july august and I think actually September as well are all really good months for going. So it's a it's a really good long season where you can where you can do this stuff. And yeah, we were there in June. It uh, it was impeccable, apart from that that one day where Sierra Grande and the were in the clouds. I mean, it didn't rain. I mean, can't really complain. Yeah. So it's it's really, and that's another great thing is it's it's just so reliable. You you're pretty well guaranteed to have a, have some have some good photographs and have a good holiday.
1: So when you were doing your packing, did you did you rely
2: on it not raining? No, we brought waterproofs, but we brought really 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 light ones, and we didn't use them at all. They just stayed in the bottom of the bag. But yeah, you can get away. I think when the climate is is like that, you can get away with not bringing your full on three layer Gore Tex jacket with you know that's guaranteed.
1: Yeah. Cool. And another question from Bridget actually, how much navigation did you need to do? Were there tracks and was the route clear?
2: There are tracks. There are basically no signposts like whatsoever. It's relatively clear. We had three tools with us for helping with navigation. We had the, the ripped out pages from the Trailblazer book, but we had a really high quality map from the Austrian Alpine Club, amazingly, who produce a map to a part of Peru. Yeah, it's a really really good quality map. And then we also had phone. So I in this case I used Outdoor Active app. I uploaded the GPX file that we wanted into it, and I saved the the base map for offline use. So between those three things, we've got you know we had Loads of we had multiple options for helping us navigate, and we used all three. You know, for different you know different kind of purposes. The the guidebook for more day to day use, the map for in in the evening that night, looking at the next day ahead to get a bit more context, and then any specific points, particularly when it got dark for us, I just grabbed the phone out and just did a quick double check. Yeah, not not too big a deal.
1: Okay, one thing we did say that we would mention is how to say the word llama, which is not llama.
2: No, it's a good point. So in Spanish, llama is built with double L at the start. So it's a yama, A llama. It's
1: going to take a little bit of getting used to.
2: Yeah, it now feels a bit wrong to say llama. Now we've got used to to, to saying llama. So it was, you know, it was like one of the very few Spanish words that we could actually say. So <laughs> we, we impressed anyone that, that wanted to listen by pointing out llamas. And they were impressed, yeah. <laughs>
1: I can I can fully imagine just, <laughs> this crazy guy. Just nod, just smile. Yeah.
2: Smile and nod.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I know that you've you've had such a brilliant time doing this route, but what's next for you in Peru? Would you would you do the route again
2: or would you do a, a different area? Oh that's 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 a great, great question. I mean as soon as we even while we were there, we were planning our next trip. It wasn't a question of, like, we started planning our next trip as soon as we got home. Yeah, it was even while we were there. I'd like to go to the range just to the north of the Waiwash, the Cordillera Blanca, which is huge, much bigger, and even higher mountains. There's, I don't know, there's something like a dozen 6,000-meter peaks. And, again, there's some great tracks there, like the Santa Cruz route and the Alpo Mayo the base camp route. So some great tracks and some big mountains to climb. Yeah, I think that would be a that would be a pretty good spot. But it's also, it's just like quite an easy place in terms of high mountain areas to go. You know, you don't have to, it depends if you want this or not, but you don't have to trek for, I don't know, for like a week or two weeks in order to actually see some high mountains. You fly to Lima, you get on an eight hour bus, it can be over an overnight. You can wake up the next morning in Guaraz and you can see half a dozen, 6,000 meter peaks from the town center and be straight up there when you're acclimatized. It's just like, it's quite a convenient place to to go if you like that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Well, it looked amazing. I mean, I I can't wait to share my holiday snaps from my week doing DIY on my house.
2: Yeah, next, week, next yeah. week's live event.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really, I hope everybody tunes in for that one. Um, <laughs> but thank you, Joe. That was that was great. Um, nice. And again, just to reiterate, we don't have a guidebook for the route that you did, but the Trailblazer guidebook was excellent. We have got a guidebook to the Inca Trails hiking and biking those Inca trails so if you are interested in going to that different area of Peru you can have a look at that please also check out our other live events we've got over a thousand articles live events podcasts on our website as well as sample routes for all our guidebooks and plenty more to help you whether you just after a bit of inspiration or whether you want to do some detailed planning have a look at the website and see what there is there for you and thank you so much joe and thank you everybody for sending in your questions and joining us tonight take care and we'll see you next month
0: i hope you enjoyed the latest episode of footnotes the cicerone podcast i'd love to know what you think or if there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes please email live at cicerone.co.uk or leave a review on your podcast platform You can follow or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss new episodes. Or you can sign up to our newsletter for all our latest news, events and guidebooks. Visit cicerone.co.uk for further details. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, come and find us on our social channels. We're on all the main ones as at Cicerone Press. And we also have a Facebook group, Cicerone Connect, where you can meet and chat to other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.